The rest of you can open up to the book of James. We're in chapter 3. Welcome. Good to see your smiling faces. Welcome back, some of you, from assorted travels near and far. So we have been in the book of James, and James, as you know by now, is really, it's a letter, and it's filled with specific commands. Almost one in two verses has a specific action point to it. So James is a book good for people that like movement in their lives. James also uses really blunt, practical language that exposes uh, showy hypocrisy. I spoke with someone this last week that didn't like religion, she said, just because of the fact that, that for the most part it was a show. And from her perception, uh, the people she knew that were religious acted one way for an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday, and then it all went away for the rest of the week. And I agree with her. I said, well, that's, that's terrible. That's nothing what the Bible talks about. James, in chapter 1, actually gives us a really succinct picture of what genuine faith looks like. It's right near the end of James chapter 1, and it says this essentially, control your tongue, care for the needy, and avoid worldliness. That's one little powerful little passage right at the end of, of, of chapter 1. And now what he's going to do in chapter 3 is he's going to expand on this idea of an unbridled tongue, or what it looks like to control your tongue. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that this morning. Consider how important speech must have been in James's mind. Okay, now who is he writing to? He's writing to Jews who are of the dispersion. These are Jews who have been persecuted for their faith. They're quite possibly facing physical pain for what they believe in. Now, if you're sitting in a jail cell or if you've been removed from your home or you're on the run from the authorities because physical pain might be coming to you and you get a letter from from your pastor, and he starts writing to you about the tongue, it elevates and shows how important speech is to the Christian life. I don't know if they were complaining, if they were grumbling, if they were gossiping, but James saw this as important and enough to address. He also didn't cut them any slack because they were suffering. I think some of us might have the, the heartbeat. Sure, they're gossiping a little bit. Sure, they're grumbling about some things. But good night, they're facing physical persecution. They had to leave their home. And we might want to give them a little break, right, and say, well, they're physically suffering for their faith. Let's cut them some slack. James doesn't do that. Maybe James knows, he knows this from from chapter 1 we see, that suffering affords a unique opportunity to praise Jesus Christ. In that, as you are going through suffering, if your tongue continues to praise God and circumstances aren't your God and comfort isn't your God, that shines through really bright in suffering. Now, words have the ability to undermine your suffering, and instead of praising God, everyone else around you says, wow, you're just like everyone else. When things go bad in your life, all of a sudden the tongue's grumbling, the tongue's complaining. All of a sudden you're gossiping and you're just down in the dumps like everyone else. I think James knew this, and that's why he devotes so much time to this. Here's a couple other things. He mentions the tongue in every single chapter of this uh, little letter. He also says this in our, in our passage today, that if you control this little thing, you're perfect. The rest of your life will be totally under control if you can get this, this tongue down. Now, I want you all to raise your hand. This is group participation. Just wake your hand. Just uh, wake your hand. Wake yourself up. Uh, raise your hand. Everyone has to participate. Now, here's what I want you to do. If you can't do one of these things, you're going to put it down, okay? So I want you to roll your R right now. Don't tell me you can roll your R. I want to hear it. Who can roll their R? If you cannot roll your R, put your hand down. If you can, you're still in the competition. Keep it up. 
I'm going to prove it, though. If your neighbor's lying, man, expose them right here. We're going to have a repentance service in front. All right, leave it up. Here's the next one. Um, who can, who can uh, curl their tongue like a taco? Okay, there you go. I'm going to see it. Yeah, Dave, that's not quite enough, man. Get that hand down. All right, if you can't do that, then, then put it down. All right, who can twist their tongue over like this? Okay, both ways now. Can you do it both ways? We still got a couple of hands up. Okay, um, leave your hand up. Here's the tiebreaker. All right, if you can do all those, by the way, these are, these are some, some talented tongues we have. This is the tiebreaker. If you can do this, if you can, whoa, we got one. Man, I wish I had a prize. That is cool. All right, Ruth is the undisputed winner of first service. Woo! That was creepy, Ruth. Um, I'm just keeping it real. That was, I did not expect to see that coming back this way. I thought, I thought it'd be behind me. All right. The tongue. See, you didn't know, you didn't know you'd be challenged this way, right? I mean, church is a place of challenge. Um, the tongue, think about this. Your tongue is you in a unique way. Uh, your tongue has the ability, in essence, to kind of tattletale on your soul. It tattletales on the real you in that what you talk about is what's going on inside. Jesus said it this way, that, that you speak from the heart, that your speech pours out that which is coming from the heart. The tongue is also one of the easiest ways to sin. Not only the words that you say, but the way in which you say those words. And just think about it. Think about your life, and not only the easiest way to sin, but maybe one of the most diverse ways to sin is with your tongue. Let's read this passage together. I'll read it. You follow along. James chapter 1. We're just going to go to verse 6. Once again, so much is written in this first half of a chapter on the tongue that we're splitting it up into two weeks. So it's really kind of a continuing thought. But we'd be here for a couple of hours to try and nail it all. So we're going to put it into two weeks. So I'm going to stop a little bit abruptly in verse 6, although James continues on. James chapter 3. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Once again, James doesn't pull any punches. He's really driving home a point, and you can hear it in his speech. Look at what James does with chapter 3. I want you to, I want you to realize that this whole discussion on the, on the topic of the tongue is set in motion by a very specific command. And the command is found in verse 1. It says this, Not many of you should become teachers. Now, kind of an interesting way to launch into the tongue. 
as I thought about this, I thought, wow, why is this the case? Why is James warning and not wanting us to have many teachers? Most churches I know want more teachers. And this is true worldwide. Talking with the church in Ethiopia, they were, I was talking to this person who's doing a church very similar to ours in age, and, uh, and their need is more teachers, more mature people who are, who are teaching and, and giving and, and pouring out in that way. So why does James do this? Why is James discouraging it? There's a popular belief today that's going on. It's really in vogue right now to believe this. And it's this, that all earthly authority is wrong. Now, I would say this is a reaction to abused authority, and it's an overreaction to it, to say, well, then let's just say that all authority is wrong. This thinking has infected the church. Uh, Switchfoot sings it this way, suspicion is the new religion. And you talk to some people and you realize, wow, their worldview, what they idolize, what they worship, is that we suspect any idea. Any idea is suspect. And that in itself really is kind of a religion. It's a system of belief that you can build your life on. Curiously, those teaching this new idea actually undermine their own premise, right? They are standing up as an authority saying, hey, everyone who teaches is wrong. All authority is wrong. What am I doing? I'm standing up as an authority teaching you that truth, right? So it's, it's actually self-defeating to even say that, but it's out there. This is the world we live in. Here's the reality. Sin has cursed the beautiful design of head-subordinate relationships found throughout the scripture. And you talk to many people in marriages. You talk to many people on the job, right? You talk to many people in the church, and you talk to many regimes, and they would say, yeah, I've been affected by that. Sin has, uh, has infected this. Here's what we should do as Christians. What we shouldn't do as Christians is, A, be ashamed of head-subordinate relationships, and, B, we shouldn't abandon head-subordinate relationships because right now the cultural climate says all authority is wrong, question all authority, right? So I just want to set that out because when the discussion of teaching comes up, that has a way of, of kind of infecting our minds or, or at least affecting our minds. Now, teaching is a specific gift found in the Bible. The Bible talks about teachers and those being gifted to teach. But every single Christian must not only be able to teach, but must be teaching. What's the great, what's the great commission that Jesus left for his disciples? For all disciples to be doing as he leaves the earth. Call it out to me. Go and make disciples. Continue it. Teaching them too. We don't even need to go any further, right? This is the great commission. Every disciple of mine, here is what you're to be doing. I'm going away. You go and make disciples. How do you do that? You teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the earth. So every Christian should be teaching. Uh, We're also told elsewhere in Scripture, we're to be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us, right? We're to preach the word in season and out of season. So every Christian ought to be exercising this gift in some way, shape, or form, like all the gifts. However, there are also specifically gifted people who are to be teachers, and that's a specific role in the church. Now, James doesn't want to discourage those who are genuinely gifted and called to be teachers. In fact, he includes himself in this list. He says, we, right, in, in, in verse 1. So he's including himself as a teacher, but he wants to limit. Now, what is the reason given for why we shouldn't have a lot of teachers? It's found in verse 1. Call it out to me. They'll be judged harsher. They'll be judged with greater strictness. 
That's the reason he lays out. So I think what I, I want to give you three things. These are in your notes if you'd like to, to write them down. But I want to just give you three Three things that I see, not only from our text, but from the scriptures, as to why the greater strictness. The first one is this, that as a teacher, your tongue has great power to sin. And as a teacher, this is magnified. Think about this. If you're sitting around with one or two people, and you're a Christian, and you start spouting off uh, some kind of a theological idea. Now, maybe it's just loose interpretation or poor interpretation or something you've been taught, so you're passing it along. Maybe you're just kind of showing off your, your Christian knowledge, and you're kind of rolling along, and you start grabbing verses from here, there, and everywhere, and you are saying this in an authoritative way to one or two people. You are sinning with your mouth right now, not giving careful attention to the word, and you're probably leading those two people astray. They're like, wow, this guy seems like he knows what he's talking about, and he's been a Christian for a whopping 10 days longer than I have, so he must be the expert. Take that picture and then put someone like that in front of a larger group of people. Do you see how the sin is just magnified? It's magnified if you have loose interpretation or a spouting of your knowledge that isn't really knowledge at all. And so instead of affecting one or two people at a coffee shop or something, you're now leading... Uh, an entire church astray, or a large group of people. Uh, if you are in the sanctioned role of, of a teacher at your church, then the effects of what you say are far-reaching and multiplied. Uh, speaking, speaking for God is just weighty. Um, whether, whether you're saying a good message or an evil message, we, just, we see this through the scripture that people understood that, that that's a big deal. Read through and just look at the condemnation given to false teachers. God took it really seriously. If you're a false teacher, not only are you just benign and you're wrong, you're actually leading them down a demonic death path because they think it's the path to life and you're leading them somewhere else. Here's a second reason. A teacher's lifestyle teaches, Right? Your life as a teacher is an example. Um, my, one of my profs at Sounds Like Christian used to say it this way, more is caught than taught. It's a very James kind of message. Your actions speak louder than your words. These are the kinds of ideas that, that, that come from that. Second Peter 5, uh, verse 2 says this. We're actually instructed in the scriptures of how, how people are to lead and teach the flock. Here's what it says. Care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you will get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own, excuse me, good example. And good example is that last word in your notes that I've highlighted saying that's a huge thing, is that if, if, if a teacher's doing it, a lot of times people will look and say, well, they're doing it, it must be okay. And so your life is just being looked at. One of the things that I, I learned early on as a youth pastor is that God was raising me up to be in full-time ministry. And so I would look at youth pastor kids and pastor kids and missionary kids and all that kind of thing. And I would get to know them. I'd say, hey, what's it like being a kid in a ministry family? You know? And what I kind of noticed was kids loved it or they hated it. It seemed like they went really strong in one of two directions. And I made it a goal. I made it a point of mine to go and study people who seemed to be doing it well and whose, whose families seemed to be thriving. And one of the things that I realized was this. To some degree, a minister's family is a bit of a fishbowl. People do kind of look at that. But here's where the hypocrisy can creep in, and this is true of anyone who's up front of any group, is that you can begin to say, you don't act like that because people are watching. 
Don't you dare do that and embarrass me in front of people at church. Don't you dare do that because of this side of the other thing. What you're doing is you're saying man's opinion is utmost, and that's what's primary and ultimate. And don't you do that because people are watching. We're the pastor family, right? And what you're doing inadvertently is you are climbing up on the pedestal, and the higher you climb, the more wobbly it gets. And instead, what I saw some families doing and that we're trying to emulate is this. And you don't do that because that's not what a Christian does. You don't act that way because that's not how Carlsons treat one another. And that's the kind of mentality that says God is ultimate. God is the opinion that matters the most and not the opinions of others. Now, a reality is you do have a lot of other people looking at you and watching your behavior. And you may get corrected by 27 other people. And that's probably not all that fair when other kids can do the same thing. And they're just not being watched that much because they're not the pastor's kid. That's okay. We're doing this for God and not as, as a big show. Let me give you a third one. A teacher is under constant attack to swerve or to slack. A teacher is under constant attack to swerve or to slack. Greater strictness is a constant reminder to every teacher to pay careful attention to the words that are spoken and the ideas that are being communicated. Some of you might go on a road trip this summer. Some of you have already been on a road trip this summer. Uh, I drive around in a giant white van. Oftentimes, we have nine people or more in that van. Let me ask you this. It's late at night. We've been off doing something really, really fun. We're driving home. Of all the people in the van, who does everyone say it is the most important for this person to stay awake? The driver, right? Anyone else can doze. Anyone else can kind of let their mind wander or snuggle up with a pillow or whatever else. You all want the driver to stay awake because the driver is steering the car. It affects everyone else. This is the idea here. There's greater strictness for a teacher because if the, if the teacher falls asleep at the wheel, and sometimes it's not ill motive, right? The most loving parent in the world can fall asleep at the wheel and kill their family or maim their family or something. And they didn't mean to do it. It just happened. As a teacher you are under constant attack to swerve or to slack. So much is riding on this. The Bible is really clear about the repeated warnings about false teachers, strange doctrines, endless controversies. You can write some of these down. Second Peter chapter 2 is a spot where Peter is addressing this in verses 1 to 3. Uh, also write down Jude. Uh, there's only one chapter, so it's verses 8 and 10 and 16. And then 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses 3 to 5. Uh, this is, these are just warnings. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get talking about endless genealogies and what this means and that means. All that stuff is death-producing. Don't get over there on that. And we, and we, can, we can tend to, to see that going on. Instead, I put this in your notes, I think, but 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy chapter 1, excuse me, verses 3 to 7. Let me summarize this way. The goal of our instruction, Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Here's a picture from the early church. Acts chapter 6. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. In Acts chapter 6, the early church is cruising along. Jesus has clearly given the great commission to people about what we're to be doing. And the church starts to grow and starts to go and do its thing. And in verse six, or in verse 2 of chapter 6, it says this. And the 12 said, by the way, they brought some needs to, to the leaders. They said, hey, look, these people are getting fed and these people aren't getting fed. Figure this out. This is unjust. This is unfair. So they bring it to the leadership. That's a good thing to do. It says this, And the twelve said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word 
of God to serve tables. So instead they say, look, pick out seven men full of the Holy Spirit to take on this really important work. Interesting side note, as a waiter, you must be full of the Holy Spirit so that you serve like Jesus Christ. That's not a menial job. That's not a meaningless job as you're welcoming people as a greeter in here. That is a person that should be full of the Holy Spirit and communicating the grace and truth of Jesus Christ no matter what part of the body that you're in. I love that little side nugget. Then in verse 4 it says this, but we, these are the apostles, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The early church leaders saw that the most important task that they could be doing has a possibility of being diverted by that which is urgent and by that which is really, really good. The feeding of widows is really, really good. But, but if the leadership, if those who are supposed to be devoting themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word don't have that time, it will be like a driver asleep at the wheel. You go over the little you know, lines and then you're off in a ditch somewhere and wonder what happened. Very quick picture of those who desire to teach. My prayer is that this church would raise up. I bumped into a, a fellow pastor at a local church, a good friend of mine, uh, this morning, and we just you know, said, hey, have a good morning uh, this morning. My desire is that the churches in South San Jose would raise up a generation of teachers. Let me just give you a couple of ideas. One is this. If you desire to teach, that's great. The Bible says that eldering, shepherding, teaching, these are, this is a noble task. That's a great thing to aspire to. So I'll start with the positive. Here's some of the other things we see in Scripture. 1 Timothy 3.6 says you shouldn't be a new convert. One of the worst things the Christian community has done sometimes is when someone famous gets saved, what do they do? They put them in front of a microphone, a bunch of TV cameras, speaking for the Christian world. The guy doesn't know jack about anything, and he's out there spouting all kinds of stuff, and you're like, huh? None of that's in the Bible. But Christians are so excited that they have a pop culture person that came to know Jesus that they'll put him out there. Uh, the Bible clearly warns against that. Here's another one is take great pains to question your motives. Why do I want to do this? You might want to ask a trusted friend. You might want to ask a, res a respected leader in the church about those kinds of things. Here's another thing is to talk and teach privately as you would publicly. So in other words, don't long one day to have the title of teacher so that all of a sudden you can start using your mouth for God's glory. When you're in a one-on-one -on -one conversation and you might be teaching a younger brother or sister in Christ, you might be leading someone to Jesus Christ for the very first time. Teach then, use your mouth in such a way privately as you would publicly so that instead of you getting up here and all of a sudden your voice changes and you're really declaring God's word, People are like, who is that talking? I mean, I see Dave's body, but that's weird. And then you get off, you're like, hey, what's up? And you have a different voice. Just, just start using it privately, what, what you would say publicly. Ephesians 4.29 says this. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Pretty high standard, right? But only such a word as is good for edification. That means building up according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. You know what that requires? Unceasing prayer. God, right now, the words that I want to come out probably shouldn't come out. Would you please give me the grace to just have a gate right now and not say these words? God, what needs to be said? Have you ever been in a situation where someone's talking to you and you don't know what to say? You go, wow, I am at a loss for words. Sometimes that's okay. Sometimes just being there is, is good. But sometimes God will well up in you something that's a healing instrument in that person's life. And, and you'll get to say it. Begin practicing that now if you desire to teach. Here's my last bit of advice is this. If you can do anything else, do it. 
Only teach if you can't do anything else. Look at the Bible. Most every mouthpiece of God was reluctant. Those who are clamoring to be the teacher, those who want to speak for God, those who are like, hey, put me up front. I've got something to say. That's usually the last. You're like, hmm, I wonder if I should give pause and not put that person up front. And all the time in youth ministry, all kinds of people wanted to address the youth. Usually the people that came and said, I've got a message for the youth. Uh, you've heard me say this before. My advice to them, that's awesome. Come and serve with me for a year, setting up chairs and tearing down chairs and doing the behind-the-scenes work. Serve the youth that way, and then let's see if you have something to say about your life. And nine times out of ten, they never show up to set up chairs. Where's their heart? Their heart is for what they can gain out of it, or maybe in their own pride. Moses was a great example of this, right? Send someone else. I'm not even that good of a speaker. So many people in scriptures just didn't want to be the mouthpiece. Now, if you can't do something else, then preach and speak and teach with all the life and the vigor and the energy that God supplies you with and do it really, really well. John Knox was a fiery uh, Scottish reformed pastor and he says this, there is no special honor in preaching. There is only special pain. The pulpit calls those anointed to it as the sea calls its sailors. And like the sea, it batters and bruises and does not rest. He goes on to say, to preach, to really preach, is to die naked a little at a time and to know each time you do that you must do it again. John Knox understood something about preaching and teaching and what it means to, to, to do that. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't pause for one second here to just draw your attention and draw your mind to something. I would like to take a moment and just basically in your own heart and mind pay tribute to those teachers in your lives that have faithfully and diligently stood by you and led you in the path of life. This could expand to topics and academics and all kinds of other things, but my brain landed specifically on Sunday school teachers that were faithful to me as a little kid when I was kind of a pain in their class, frankly. And then youth leaders that poured into me and pastors that faithfully and diligently prepared and taught the word of God. Bad teachers can do much harm, but I wonder who can calculate the good that a faithful teacher will, will give. And maybe only in eternity will we release, really see the abundant fruit that those kinds of teachers produce. Some of you will leave this church one day and go somewhere else. Maybe you'll move, you'll go off to college, whatever might happen. And a, question, a common question is this, well, I want to make sure I'm getting good, solid teaching. I want to make sure I'm getting good, solid, sound preaching. How do I know that? The Bible gives some indication for that. All through First and Second Timothy is Paul, a preacher, leader, pastor, teacher, at the end of his life and career, at the end of his race, writing to young Timothy. And he's saying, here's some instruction on how to do this and do this well. And we have a lot to, to glean from it. I'll just summarize it with 2 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. And it just says this, listen. I charge you in the presence of God. There's the soberness, right? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine or teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
It's worth a read to read First and Second Timothy and thinking about um, this idea of teaching. James says, let not many of you become teachers. There's a greater strictness that comes with that. Now he launches into the tongue. Now, this whole section on the tongue is applicable to all of us, although I want you to keep the premise of why he's saying this about teaching. So, moving on. Uh, the importance of the tongue. Think about, he gives some examples here of, of what has been conquered by the tongue. And I thought about how much more we've conquered since James Day. I mean, think about all the different avenues we could go in and say, wow, James could never fathom what it is to control the power of splitting an atom, right? Or to, or to space travel or go to the depths of the ocean or to harness the power of the sun to move a car. I mean, these are all other kinds of things beyond a ship and beyond a horse that we've conquered, and yet the truth remains. No one can tame the tongue. This little guy still runs rampant all over the earth, and now all the more so because we've harnessed the power of blogging and the Internet. Now, a couple of ideas. One is this, that the tongue controls. The tongue controls. Bit, rudder, campfire. All those things are small relative to that which they direct or that they control, right? A bit controls the, the horse, the rudder, a ship, a campfire, an entire forest. Uh, here's some stats on the tongue that you've longed to know. One is that it, in average, weighs two ounces. Now, I don't know how they weigh that. Actually, I do. It's kind of gross. Don't weigh your tongue. It'll just be weird. Secondly, it's four inches long. But think about this little two-ounce, four-inch-long thing, part of your body, and how much it does. I mean, it just does a lot for your life, good or bad, right? And, and we can get frustrated or pleased by it. The tongue directs. Uh, we went to the California Hall of Fame recently, uh, right across the street, right down the street from the state capitol. And it was kind of fun to see that. I was thinking about the, the, the tongue, and what if there was a tongue hall of fame, right? Whose tongue would be in there? It would make for some interesting displays. I mean, I could just see it now, you know, dangling from invisible wire, like there's the actual tongue. And other ones are gold and bombed, whatever. But let me, let me put up two pictures and just, and just give you an idea of how speech affects millions of people and the ripples are still felt today. Okay? We have dreams and nightmares from Martin Luther King and Hitler. Right? Two people that gave powerful use with their tongue. Are we still feeling it today? Absolutely. For some of us in this room, this was in our lifetime to see some of these things go on and bear witness to it. Perhaps this is the wisdom of James when he says that the tongue is set on fire from hell. I mean, if that doesn't wake you up and kind of shock you into, wow, this must be an important topic, I don't know what does. Not only does the tongue control, the tongue also corrupts. Look at how it says that it stains the whole body. How is that true? The negative side of this is that the tongue stains the whole body. The positive side is you get control of this little baby, the whole body, you're perfect. Your whole life is under control if you can control your tongue. So there it is, kind of the positive and negative command. Um, think about this. All sin finds expression be, by your lips and by your speech. Think about greed and pride and lust and hate and laziness and gluttony and idolatry and on and on and on we could go and how it finds expression in the tongue. People talking about what they did, bragging about what they have, scheming with others about what they're going to do. The tongue is involved in all of those sins. To be clear about what corrupt talk is, let me just give you a couple of thoughts. For sure, gossip and slander. Gossip and slander. One of the things we talked about a couple weeks ago was favoritism and how favoritism is sort of a more accepted 
sin of the church, although it ought not be. It's a heinous, gross sin. And, and James draws attention to that. If you're doing that, you don't have genuine faith. You're not displaying um, the, the, the genuine faith of Christ. Gossip and slander are close cousins to that. They're, they're the instruments by which favoritism plays out, right? Psst. You just kind of nudge someone. Look, look who just came in. Look who they're with. Look what they're wearing. Look what they drove up in. Whatever it might be. And those kinds of things can kind of roll off the tongue. Let me give you a couple of others. Blasphemy. Blasphemy is speaking out against God. That was the first sin, by the way, right? It was Adam actually blaming God. It's this woman you gave me, Lord. Implicating God in the sin. Let's go on. Profanity. Complaining. Criticizing. Innuendo. Kind of on and on we could go with this, right? And to see, um, to see these things played out. One of the ideas with innuendo that I thought about was, was how much that plays in sitcoms. How much that plays in movie is suggestion and kind of double meaning. And it's, it's, like, it's like sly sinning. It's like, we're going to say this. That's kind of on the level. But we really know what that all means, don't we? Wink, wink. Right? That's sin. I need a volunteer. Curran, come on up. <laughs> so, Curran, I, I have a little job for you. And I'm, you're going to just do it kind of front and center here. I want you to stand behind this. And what I want you to do, you work with toothpaste much? I guess so. Okay. This is the multi-benefit kind. Wow. You handle that? All right. I want you to take that. I want you to empty the contents onto the plate. Keeping it on the plate, please. All right, look at the screen for a second while he does that. The Bible mentions many kinds of tongues, a flattering tongue, a proud tongue, a lying tongue, a deceitful tongue, a perverted tongue, a destructive tongue, a mischievous and wicked tongue, and a backbiting tongue. That's the sampling. There's, there's more we could go on, but those are, some, those are some serious tongues going on. Now, while I read some positives, I'm going to get some positives out. Um, Kern, what I want you to do, how are you doing over there? Good job. You did a good job. I don't know who taught you not to roll it from the end, but that's how you do it. <laughs> His wife's going to be like, who taught you to use toothpaste? Um, here's what I want you to do. While I read some of the positive tongues, what I want you to do is just go ahead and get that toothpaste back into the tube. You're going to get your hands messy. You can leave church and wash. I'll give you the excuse to do that. Okay? So go ahead and get that back in uh, while I read this. The Bible also mentions a soothing tongue, a healing tongue, a gentle tongue. Do you see why I chose my son? I knew he wouldn't mind getting his hands messy. Keep it on the plate, son. Um, all right. No matter what kind of tongue, whether it's a, whether it's a split snake tongue doing evil or a positive, healing, gentle rain tongue giving, giving blessing to those around it, here's the reality. Our words are like this toothpaste, right? Once they get out, we can't get them back in. Next time you brush your teeth, you remember that. Kern, you take that whole giant mess, you walk out the door, you use your back to open the door, and you go wash up. Thanks, buddy. Give it up for Kern. There's many careers that are just off the table if you're not willing to get your hands messy. So he's got surgeon locked up. Um, this leads us to our, to our cowboy's dumb for the, for the morning, which is this. Letting the cat out of the bag is a whole lot easier than putting it back, Right? So as you're talking, as you're saying these words, is to give pause. This is why James probably says, be slow to speak. How much sin this past week may have been avoided? How about the temperature and climate, the emotional temperature and climate of the home or the workplace would, would have changed had someone just given pause? 
the old rule of thumb of go count to ten. Go take a walk. Some of you are fiery with your fingers. Before you hit send, man, would you, would you please just grab someone else and say, can you read this over? Here's the tone I'm trying to communicate. Can you make sure that it, that it says that? So many times that has saved me and saved friends of mine and said, man, I was about to unleash the fires of hell with my ten tongues, right? Typing away on the keyboard, and I'm so glad I ran this by my wife. I'm so glad my husband came along and saw it before I hit send. All right, so what do we do with our tongue? I think that this is true. I think there's people in our midst that would never walk around with a loaded gun pointing at someone and shoot a neighbor and watch them bleed out from a gunshot wound. And I think those same people would never come and set fire to their church, pouring gasoline and flammable stuff all over it and light their church up. But I think some of those same people are walking around with a loaded weapon, firing at will, and they're, they're arsons to their church, to their neighborhood, to their family, to their marriage, to their kids. And they're setting fire to things, and they want to stop. The Bible, fortunately, gives us instruction. Ben's, Ben's got the better passage next week. Uh, there's a lot more positive. It talks about praise and some of the positive things. But I want to just give you some practical things as we wrap up this morning of what to do with my tongue. First of all is to guard it. Look at Psalm 39.1. It's in your, it's in your uh, bulletin handout. This is David writing. He said, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. Just a prayer that says, God, would you help me today? Guard my mouth with a muzzle. Here's the second thing is to season it. Colossians 4, 6 is a great passage to memorize. Let your speech, when? Always. Wow, that's a high standard. Do you see how it takes a converted person? It takes a disciple of Jesus, it takes a brand new heart to always have gracious speech. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Again, unceasing prayer isn't hard when you're trying to live this out. You will just need to pray over and over. God, right now, in this moment, I couldn't possibly have prepared for all the conversations I had this last week, and neither can you. As we look ahead to this next month, there's no way we can plan ahead for that. It's in, it's in a moment-by-moment thing to just be talking with the Lord and being in, in step with that. Finally is this, to sink it. Sink your tongue, as in get it in step with your walk. Watch this in Psalm, 50, uh, Psalm 15. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and does what is righteous. Watch him link walk and talk here who speaks the truth from his heart. His walk is upright, his, his, his walk is, is blameless, and he speaks the truth from his heart. He goes on to say, he has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts. I want to invite the band up, and we're going to sing a song right now uh, as we wrap up our service called Words That You Say, and Ben alluded to this earlier, that the words God would say through us is, as a Christian, what I long for. 
I want my hands to be the hands of Jesus. I want my mind to be the mind of Christ. I want my feet to go and walk, right? Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. I want my mouth to always be gracious. I want it to be on Sundays. I want it to be that on Thursday afternoon, (laughs) Saturday morning, whatever we're doing. Your tongue is an index of your heart. Here's the reality. When we get done and I stop talking and you all disperse and you start talking, you are going to talk about that which is on your mind, right? You're going to talk about that which is important to you. You are going to speak and talk about that which you love. So if God and his praise isn't rolling off our tongue, that's a wake-up call. Say, God, that's a picture inside my heart. So our prayer, my prayer for you this morning, my prayer for for me this morning is, God, would you create and recreate in me a right spirit, a pure heart, so that your praise would be rolling off of my tongue. Whether I'm in pastor mode, whether I'm teaching in front of people, whether I'm just hanging out. And that's got to be a work of God. We can't will ourselves into doing these things. The natural man, the natural woman, isn't longing to speak about and do those kinds of things. That's a recreative thing that God does in us. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your words. I thank you, God, for the clear tone that you give. I thank you for the men and women that you have put before us, not only as examples in their life, but examples in their teaching. I thank you, God, for preserving the Bible for us. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you speak to us and lead us and nudge us as we go through our day and our weeks. Father, I pray that at this church, with my own mouth, with Ben, and with others who would stand in front and teach, God, that you would prevent us from some of these pitfalls that we've seen in the Scriptures. I pray, God, that we would have an open congregation, open family feel that would say to one another truthful words, in a gracious and loving spirit. God, would you allow our words this week to be edifying, to build up. I pray, God, that we could look at things that say, always be gracious, let no unwholesome word. And God, that that would cause us to fall all the more ready onto our knees before a holy God and say, God, without your help, I'm a ruined man. I'm a ruined woman. I I cannot live this out. We look to you. We love you. Form yourself in us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.